Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. All right, y'all, we are back with the stacks. I am your host, Tracy Thomas. This week, I'm joined by our guest, Aaron Dolores. He is the founder of Black Arrow FC, and we are talking about Franklin Fowler's book, How Soccer Explains the World. Before we get to that, I've got my little housekeeping for you. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. Rate and review this show. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate the ratings and the reviews. They help us get the word out to other listeners and help us reach new audiences. It's very easy. It takes like five seconds I don't know, maybe a minute. I hope that you can spare that time for us. Our most recent review is from GA Boy 1125 He says, I love this podcast. It is incredibly informative and keeps me in the know about books that I should be reading. Tracy is hilarious, smart, and witty with a tad bit of shade, which is true. This makes for perfect listening. Keep up the good work. We'll be here every week listening to you and your guests. Thank you, GA Boy 1125 We appreciate you taking the time to make a review. The rest of you, if you've yet to do that, please, 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 we'd really appreciate it. The other thing we appreciate is those of you who are able to join our Patreon community. We're calling you our Stacks Pack. Patreon is an easy way for you to contribute to this show. You help us keep the lights on. You help us keep the website up. You help us be able to do new and exciting content. In exchange, you get exclusive perks. You get social media shout outs. You get access to our guests. You get to help us pick books that we might cover on the show later. And you get what I'm about to do, our Stacks Pack shout out for the week. These are people who have contributed um, to our show on a certain level and they get their name read. So here it is. Brady Thomas, Susan Shane, Sue Thomas, Roberta Actenberg, and Sarah Fong. We thank you so much for joining the Stacks Pack. And the rest of you, if you're not part of the Stacks Pack yet, get on it www.patreon.com slash the stacks. You can also find a link to that in the show notes. Thank you for supporting this show. It means a lot and I really, really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Now, this week, Aaron and I are discussing Franklin Fowler's book, How Soccer Explains the World. We're looking at socio-political, economic events, shifts, cultural moments and how they affect soccer and how soccer in turn affects those things. We're also diving deep into the racism that is found in the soccer community, especially in Europe. There are no spoilers this week because our conversation more focuses on contextualizing soccer in culture and culture in soccer. So if you've not read the book yet, don't worry, you can listen. It's the world cup. Maybe you want a little to learn a little bit about some of the players you're seeing. Um, That's it from me right now. So go listen, enjoy the show. And of course, if you have any feedback, hit me up, Instagram, email. You can find me on any of our social media platforms and I love engaging with y'all. So here it is, Aaron and I talking soccer. All right, y'all. I am back here again with Aaron Dolores, the creator, founder of Black Arrow FC. Um, we're here today. We're ta- doing our Stacks Book Club episode, and we're talking about the book, How Soccer Explains the World. Um, it's written by Franklin Foer. He is a journalist um, based in D.C. The book was written in 2006. 
Um, and the kind of the premise of the book is that it's a world tour of soccer and it shines a light on the changing world economy, cultural clashes, and the way that so- soccer functions as a communal outlet for celebration and also for resistance. Um, so Foer takes us across the globe. Um, he's mostly focused in Europe. There is a little jaunt to the U.S. and a little jaunt to Brazil, but it's mostly, you know, the main players in um the soccer world. So Italy, uh, England, Ireland, Scotland, Serbia, of course, a main player. Um, anyway, so Aaron, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having <laughs> me back. You're welcome. No. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. So just to dive in right away into this book, what are kind of your initial thoughts about this book? Well, what I, lo- what I really love about this book is because it represents um, so much of what we look to do in our business Mm -hmm. with black arrow, which is, um, connecting the sport with, um, things that are happening off the field, other narratives, um, political stuff, cultural stuff, historical stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think more than any other sport, um, soccer is, um, especially outside of this country. So intertwined with, um, politics and race and religion and class, Mm -hmm. um, um, that you know, this book really does a good job to to people who aren't aware um, of, of how that functions in, mm-hmm. in, in Europe and in Latin America and stuff. Um, this book really helps explain that. Yeah, I mean, um, as I mentioned, the book was written in 2006, which was a World Cup year, like this year. Um, as this episode is airing, we're actually in that that second week, I think, of the World Cup. Um, so you know, the rest of the world and maybe a few people that you might know, um, in America are watching the world cup. Um, but it definitely feels like this book is trying to, um, drive the point or the idea home that soccer is more than just a sporting event. And, you know, I think that he does a great job of kind of trying to tie it in, um, to the greater world picture. But I also, you know, wonder a little bit if this book was written in 2006 like, you know, in connection with FIFA, right? Like to, to be like, Hey, let's get some Americans to talk about soccer. Yeah, um, for sure. And it, he definitely, he romanticizes you know, a little, he romanticizes it a lot. And I think he, you know, plays off of, um, a lot of the things that he knows people are going to respond to sure. in order to create interest and intrigue in, in the sport. Yeah. You know, this book is for people that, are not, um, if you're into soccer, you're reading this book because you want to pat yourself on the back for soccer. And if you're not into soccer, I think that was his second, you know, target of, of people that are into politics and race and religion and wanted to see how the two things are connected. Yeah, totally. And I think, like, as you said, he kind of tries to pull on some of those points of interest for non-soccer people. And he, I mean, he starts the book right off with hooliganism. And um, for people who don't really know what that means, do you kind of want to give a general sense of like the soccer hooligan? Yeah, sure. So um, most major teams and even now teams here in the United States have what they call supporter groups, um, which is one thing that makes soccer very unique. Um, You know, in other sports in America here, you just have fans and Mm -hmm. kind of people get together. The supporter groups often have a, um, a a structural and fundamental relationship with the team themselves. um, Meaning that sometimes the team, you know, gives them certain tickets. Um, The supporter groups, essentially are just, they call them ultras. They're just the diehard fans that support that team. Right. Um, so it's like the black hole at the Raider games, but exactly. on a much bigger scale and endorsed by the Raiders, essentially. Yeah. And so you'll have like official and unofficial ones. You'll have supporter groups that used to be endorsed and they lose their endorsements okay. and the team might try to shut them down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, and a lot of them operate as businesses as well. Like um, you have to pay to be... You have to pay to be in it and they'll, they'll raise money. They'll raise money for the team, for the team to go buy players Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Hmm. they, they, they hold a lot of power, whether it's real or perceived is really Mm -hmm. dependent on the situation. And then 
as is you would expect the supporter groups from the teams often fight each other, beat each other up and from d- opposing teams from opposing teams. Yeah. Yeah. Got sorry. It. Yeah. Um, I, I did find the hooligan stuff pretty interesting just as I was thinking about it and kind of framing it. I, I personally am a big sports fan, but I'm not, a, I'm not a big soccer fan. I'll watch the world cup and mm-hmm. you know, if, if it's on, if it's a premier league, whatever championship or something, I might catch a few minutes if I'm awake. But when I think about it, um, and I think about football, American football or basketball, the thought of, you know, having these groups, um, is it's okay. It happens. <laughs> Uh, sometimes our microphones are noisy. Um, anyways, uh, I think about, you know, these groups and like, they're notorious also for violence and, you know, there have been people who've been severely injured. And I know like a few years back in baseball, there was a a San Francisco Giants fan who got beat up by some Dodgers fans. Um, and it was like a huge, huge story in sports and he got to like throw out an opening pitch and like the players went to visit him in the hospital. And I just think about like how commonplace this is in soccer. And I wonder, is this something that would be able to function and survive in American sports or in American soccer? Um, when we think about the, the fan base, right? Yeah. Um, like, or like a soccer team, like is it FC Atlanta? Um, Atlanta United. Oh, Atlanta United. Yeah. Um, I know that they have like a large black fan base. Like are there large black fan base hooligan groups or are they treated differently? (laughs) Um, the fan base in Atlanta is um, not predominantly black. There are a mm. lot of black fans. Mm-hmm. One of their supporter groups is the Footy Mob, right. which is a playoff of the Goody Mob. Right. Um, but which is which is a music pretty reference. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the most of the supporter groups in the United States, um, primarily, what they do, and this isn't too like dog them at all because some people in soccer will take this the wrong way but they really try to embody the energy of Mm -hmm. supporter groups that you'll see in latin america or um or europe Mm -hmm. and bring that you know bring that vibe to the game so it'll set off flares and they have you know really organized chants and they bring out these big um you know tifos which are just like these huge signs um and so they really um they're they're not as like crazy or mm-hmm. insane um you know i think that in a in a country like the united states like people are pretty um you know happy and comfortable mm-hmm. whereas like the a lot of the hooligans you're seeing in like russia or um england are you know uh, groups of working class people that sure. um are not you know happy in life and I feel mistreated in one way or another. Sure. Primarily, if you're a soccer fan in the United States, you're new to the sport. Mm-hmm. You have some money because you can go to the game and stuff like that. So they're, you know, they're... But I mean, these games cost money in Europe too. Yeah. No, they do. They do. Um, and I mean, from my understanding, and also he kind of talks about it in the book, um, in the last 20 years, you know, since the 90s, especially in England, these games have become more and more, have moved more and more away from working class. And the people that are going to the games are more wealthy and it's become a little bit more like, you know, the San Francisco 49ers where it's now, it's not even in San Francisco. It's like thousands of dollars to sit in the good seats. And so, you know, I just, I just wonder what I'm really asking you basically, if I just going to be straight up is, do you think that black people mm-hmm. who are supporters of soccer have the same luxury to behave as the hooligans that are white? Well, or no. is it not that simple? No, not at all. I mean, black people don't have the same luxuries as white people in any capacity, um, especially in, in soccer. But I don't, in the United States, you, you don't really have many organized black supporters anyways. Are there organized black supporters in Europe? Um, you know, you will have in, in Africa, you okay. do obviously in, you know, in Nigeria and Ghana, soccer is huge. Right. Um, a lot of the, the black supporters um, are in England, you know, are part of, other groups that don't necessarily have like the hooligan aspect. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's an interesting story. We did this um, video called why black folks love Arsenal. Right. 
and um, we went into the history of um, you know Arsenal as a club, and you know they one of the first teams in England to sign a lot of the black players, and so a lot of the um, the Nigerians and Ghanaians and stuff where those players were from mm-hmm. started um, you know supporting the team. Um, and then like Terry Henry was, you know, one of the biggest, you know, black, one of the first kind of black global superstars, sure. you know, obviously like after Pele and stuff. So he was the first one for African-Americans that kind of made it into our um, perspective. <clears throat> but when we released the video, um, some people in the comments were telling me the story about this, um, this one Arsenal hooligan. And he was in the maybe in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, and he was a black dude that um, his family was from Jamaica, okay. and um, he was part of um, one of these um, emerging hooligan clans, Okay, um, and it was an all-white clan, but he was just, um, you know, he was one of these dudes that, you know, kind of walked to the beat of his own drum, Got it. but he was still black. Did he have, like, a racist nickname or anything? <laughs> they didn't call him The something. bear. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> But um, <laughs> a little nervous there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was just really into the team. He was really into it, and he was hanging out with people that you would otherwise that were probably pretty racist in one way or another. But um, he was down, and you know he would they would go fight people and you know do the whole thing. And um, at this time, a lot of the the far right um, groups were trying to um, infiltrate these um, soccer. Um, mm-hmm. hooligans because mm-hmm. you know they're organized if you infiltrate them you have basically a, a structure of people that you right. can mobilize for anything else sure. and um you know so when these skinheads were trying to infiltrate this um group of hooligans that this one black guy was a part of he's he essentially by all accounts fought them off himself yeah. and also because the I, I would you know what what you read is that this group of hooligans put was pretty much geared up to kind of go the direction of what oh. these alt-right folks were doing. And the but bear was like, nah, yeah. Well, and they supported him. That's cool. And so they kind of were just like, look, you know, this is our dude. He's been part of our group and he's a big, you know, supporter of the club and a big part of our history. So they, they just turned their backs on them, you know? Um, so there's, there's, there's some cool stories um, about like soccer hooligans and, um, some some black folks that have you know done important things because you know that could have went a whole other direction. Well, I'm I'm really glad to hear that yeah. because this book, um, as much as Forward tries to make um, soccer sound really you know idealistic, there's some stuff in this book that I found to be um, I think problematic is a lovely kind way of putting it, and there was some stuff that I was pretty off put by um, there. There is a team in uh, England, Tottenham, Mm -hmm. and their uh, nickname is the Yids, from what I understand. I think it's maybe like a uh, self-induced nickname. It's not – that doesn't say that on their jerseys or anything. Um, But he talks a lot about this kind of anti-Jewish sentiment in England and how this team, the the Tottenham Yids – short for Yiddish, um, kind of embrace this nickname as a way to fight back against Chelsea, which is at the time, and I think still now, is a team that's known to be pretty anti-everybody-not-white, um, from my understanding, <laughs> um, but specifically anti-Semitic. And the way that they kind of fought them off was through embracing being Jewish even though they weren't actually Jewish, like there weren't Jewish people on the team and they had right. chants. Um, the former U S soccer coach, Jurgen Klinsmann played for Tottenham. And I guess they had a chant that was like, you know, uh, chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chiru. Mm-hmm. Jurgen was German, but now he's a Jew right. and like crazy shit like that. And yeah. the book kind of is like, isn't that awesome that they were <laughs> able to fight off this anti-Semitism by being themselves more anti-Semitic. And it just, I find that to be problematic, but also just really interesting that the defense for anti-Semitism in this book is just like, if you can't beat them, just be more offensive. And he talks about how they're, Chelsea's talking shit to, to Tottenham and then they are like, oh yeah, well, we're Jewish. And they round up a group of Jewish people and have them pull down their pants and show their <laughs> circumcised penises. And like, I... I 
he doesn't really fight it in this book. And that's kind of like my big problem with the book is like he presents all these stories, but he has no take on it. Or he doesn't place it where you think it belongs. Well, he doesn't contextualize it as at all as saying like he kind of says like, and isn't that, isn't that clever? Right. And it is, it's totally clever. Like that's how you fight a bully, right? They say like you're a nerd and you're like, yeah, look at my pocket protector. Right. But also like he doesn't address the bully. Right. You know, so I just wonder, um, have you, in being involved in soccer, like noticed this kind of like nationalistic or, you know, anti-Semitism and, and I will get to the racism in the book later, but, uh, <laughs> cause y'all it's there, you know, it's there, you know, it's there. Um, have you noticed that or like sensed that at all in your, I know you've traveled to some countries and experienced soccer, um, is that something that you've like ever felt uncomfortable by, you know, being part of these, these culturally inconsiderate yes. moments? So a few things here to kind of like unpack from my perspective, um, which is like one British people are really sarcastic and a lot of their chants and their cheers. Um, you know, like if you ever watch a game, if someone takes like a shot from like, outside that like you would he would never make you know everyone goes oh you know so there's a um there's a level of sarcasm in there and i'm not justifying it i'm more just kind of talking about where some of this stuff um comes from and one thing that's been really cool about black arrow you know our perspective on the sport is we look at black people and black culture and some of the things that are happening and i didn't realize until you know, I really got into this, that we have the power of taking out the competitiveness Mm -hmm. that happens in soccer. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it opens up, um, one, a a better, a better world. Mm -hmm. And two, um, it opens you up to being more objective and to, um, you know, a lot of things that you might not otherwise be interested in, right? Like if all you care about is Arsenal, then you're not going to learn much about what's happening in Italy or sure. Colombia. Um, so, you know, to the, to the kind of current state of hooliganism is like one in England, like you can't even wear jerseys to the, you can't even wear your own team jerseys. Like they have a dress code, you know, like how, you know, they made black people. You had to used to, you know, in Oakland, you had to like wear a button up mm-hmm. just to get into the club type mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. So they have that now. Wait, where... so like if you're going to an Arsenal game, you can't wear an Arsenal jersey? Mm-mm. That's crazy. Yeah. And you definitely can't wear <laughs> the other team's jersey. The other team's jersey. So <laughs> wow. um, they've really attempted to clean it up. So a lot of it still happens um, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. One thing that's really interesting, and again, I don't want to um, sound the same way that you're saying that this author is, but the supporters in soccer often um, feel like the team is bigger than the players. Sure. Whereas here in the United States, like LeBron is bigger than the Cavs. Sure. Steph is bigger than the Warriors. Sure. Um, even, you know, maybe, you know, the Yankees and some of these things, but mm-hmm. um, they're – Earlier this year, one of my favorite players, Lukaku, who's a really big, like, black dude. He's mm-hmm. six five. Mm-hmm. He looks like LeBron. Okay. So if anyone ever says, how come there's, Le- there's no LeBron playing bas- uh, football or soccer, mm-hmm. there is. Um, <laughs> and he plays for Manchester United. It's very, like, traditional, you know, organization with some pretty cr- crazy fans. And mm-hmm. they were um, – the fans started singing this song about the size of his penis. Oh. Um, and it, you know, it's like some slick Mandingo type of stuff, right? you know what I mean? Um, and so, uh, he came out, you know, after the, the, after just them singing this song and, and, you know, it's not the whole stadium, right? Right. It's a group of, you know, folks. And he came out and, you know, was like, Hey, you know, thank you guys. Like, (laughs) I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, are, um, feel like you want to sing a song about my penis, but like, it's not appropriate. And, you know, historically and culturally, um, you need to chill. Right. You know? And so the next game, the fans came out and they sang, we're Manchester United. We can say, we can sing whatever song we want, which is 
what's crazy about that is not just that they did it, but you have a group of fans. He's one of the best players on their team. Sure. And so it, it's just a different um, beast when you're looking at soccer in the United States. Like you're not going to sing that about clay or right. Draymond, no. you know, you, you love those players. Right. And so these supporter groups have a, um, a, a belief and an understanding in their minds that, um, they are just as important to the club as even the players, and if not more important. Sure. You know, the author of the book kind of touches on that about this, like, idea of, like, you know, nationalism and um, and these – a lot of the fans being these – I mean, he he talks about how years ago there were really few women who would go to games at all and that, you know, teams like Barcelona have the most women because they kind of have a different culture than some of the other um, more – well-known European teams, but it sounds kind of like that idea of like, you're not going to tell us what to do, or, you know, you're not in charge of us. Like we're important too. comes from this, this same thing that we have been seeing in America since the 2016 election, which is this like white male, we're not going to be left behind or this in the globalization and in the changing world, like this is our tradition and no one's going to kind of separate us from this. Right. And that stuff to me is dangerous, right? Like that's what leads to that kind of thinking is what leads to a Brexit or a Trump or whatever that is. And, you know, whether or not that's those feelings are, based in fact, people obviously have those feelings. Right. Um, and I just, when I read this book and I think this book was written 2016 or 2006, like, you know, I, I wish that Foer had dove in a little deeper and kind of talked about it a little more just because I feel like that was a time, you know, before we were really thinking about this and he had the foresight to kind of see the quote unquote left behindness, but he doesn't really challenge it. And that's, I think what's hard for me now looking back 12 years from when this book was published. And I think like, you know, he was on to something and was a little bit frightened maybe of what he was seeing and was afraid to like ruffle feathers in his book about how great soccer is. You know what I'm saying? For sure. He he definitely is, you know, ingratiating himself to yeah. the, the soccer community. I think it, even in uh, to take it a little bit further back just for some context, mm-hmm. which is like some of these teams, you know, we think of – because of in America everything is new, right? Right. Um, a lot of these teams came from literally like labor movements. Um, they were factories that had a, um, a club team that then evolved into a professional team. They were churches that had um, teams and then – you know, evolved into being a professional team. So it, it soccer goes so far back that um, a lot of these, you know, these things that you're seeing are truly ingrained in the identity of these teams because they came out of that. And people that are new to the sport might not see it because these teams have washed a lot of that out. Um, and so... You know, I think that's just one thing to keep in mind. Again, not to justify because, yes, it's it's worrisome and it's problematic and it's not all good. Right. Um, it's just a matter of like for us to you know, academically kind of understand um, where that where that comes from. Sure. Um, another thing that Fower kind of talks about in the same line is about there's a few instances where things occur, um, specifically in Ukraine. There, um, they have an African player and. Um, the Ukrainian team is mostly people from Ukraine. There's a handful of people who are at this time are um, Serbian and they have a Serbian coach and then they have these two African players. And he, um, Foer, is interacting with the African player and some journalists come up to him and they see that he's talking to him. And then when he walks away, they say in English, like, monkey. Right. And then the other journalist says, banana. And, and then, so here's what Foer has to say about that. And this part of the book, like, I mean, I'm a black woman in America and it's 2018 and there's a whole lot of shit going on. So I'm obviously reading this book differently. I read this book in 2000, 
10 and mm. I don't remember any of it, right. which is to say that at the time I clearly didn't think it was a big deal. Cause this book, I literally like I rated it on Goodreads. I had no idea I even read it, but so here's what he says. First of all, he calls that interaction a racial list and not a racist interaction, which to me is like, okay. And we'll talk about that in a second. But he says, um, that the, that he's talking about like the, the context of this racism in these parts of Europe. And he says, this is a little paragraph. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's important. And it was a really like a moment for me. He says, yet their hatred doesn't betray isolation, but the opposite. There's a strange uniformity in the vocabulary European soccer fans use to hate black people. The same primate insults get hurled. Although they've gotten better over time, the English and Italians develop the tradition of making ape noises when black players touch the ball. The poles toss bananas on the field. This consistency owes nothing to television, which rarely shows these finer points of fan behavior, nor are these insults considered polite to discuss in public. This trope has simply become a continent-wide folk tradition transmitted via the stadium from fan to fan, from father to son. So essentially what he's saying is this isn't something that people are learning and seeing and thinking, oh, this is so funny, I want to do it. It's something that they're being taught person to person. And so for me, I'm like, that's clearly racism. Like that's not an accident. That's something that these people are saying no matter how shitty it is in Ukraine or Italy or London or whatever, we're still better than these monkeys or like we can still treat these people who also are millionaires making tons of money. Right. We still feel like that we are better than them simply because they're black. Right. Like, and I just think it's so interesting that that is a, that's something that's culturally supported by by black fans, right? Like, or by any fans, like people who are quote unquote liberal, like this is happening in, it's not just happening like in the outskirts of Italy, it's happening in Rome, like it's happening. And I just find that to be shocking, but also really more so I am, I'm shocked by how casually it's brought up in the book. Right. It's a huge issue. I mean, every league is trying to figure out how to deal with it. Right. There's anti-racism campaigns. There's videos. There's nonprofits. One of the biggest one is called Kick Out. Um, they basically, you know, um, go after anybody and anyone who is, you know, being racist or um, supporting um, racism. Mm -hmm. you know, I heard an interview one time with one of the um, – more famous players and one of the broadcasters, you know, was like, so what do you think that we should do, you know, about the racism? And like, in my mind, that's just crazy because it's like, when you're asking the person who's being, right. You know, sure. discriminated against, sure. and this guy has to actually play in the game and try to win. And you know what I mean? It's right. like, it's not necessarily his job to combat, you know, the racism. So, a few things that I would touch on for one, this brings up the power of like what I see in Black Arrow, which is um, being able to unify black folks off the field. Right. And which gives us what? A voice, a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. It gives us um, uh, almost a, um, a union of right. people that can say, we're here, we're here, we're here. Right. And it's like kind of like a black soccer lobby almost. Like exactly. you got to pay attention to us. Exactly. So, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, black players, but the reason I say that, and, you know, we've done these um, what we call MLS takeovers where we get, you know, 60 um, seats all in the same section, 100 mm -hmm. seats in the same section, is that if there's if there was 3,000 black folks in that stadium, you wouldn't you're be You're not throwing, doing that. You're not doing you're that. You're not doing that. Right? So They're not um, doing that at basketball games. Right. Right. They're but also doing there's it. a level – there's a different relationship between fans and players, as you were saying. Right. But, like, in, in a sense, those players are out on a, an island, which mm -hmm. is even more scary mm -hmm. for them because if someone does that to you in an NBA game, you're – you know, everybody in the stadium's on your side, the team's on your side, the league's right. on your side, and it's very clear. So um, that's one reason why I was, you know, very motivated to, to start this brand – um, another piece of context to, you know, what you're saying though, which I found really interesting, which is understanding, um, the more I study, uh, the African diaspora, mm -hmm. 
the more one I realize that African Americans, you know, really have created something special and unique. Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Sure. These are um, people that have studied all around the world, and you know, our experience here in the United States was terrible, mm-hmm. um, and it was terrible in other places mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that we um, fought against that, and the way that uh, we were able to overcome often through like love and education. And so, you know, some of the things like uh, other countries, they just like, let's go get the guns and we're going to have a right. shootout. Right. So, um, you know, learning some of this stuff and, and I'll kind of get to the point, but learning some of this <laughs> stuff, um, you know, really helped me understand how special African-Americans are not any more special than anybody else. But, um, you know, in London, it's a different perspective on race. The, Majority of black people that are in London are first um, generation immigrants, second generation immigrants from, you know, the um, the Commonwealth. Okay. And um, they're happy to be there. Sure. You know, they're educated. They are there. They're not all educated, but some of them, their families um, have moved there for a better life. Sure. And um, it's not to say that there's not very progressive and revolutionary black folks in England and London. But um, there, there is this sentiment that like, Hey man, like we don't want to kick up any dust. Well, it's just a different relationship to, to ownership of the country. Exactly. Like if you come to a country, you might experience discrimination, but if you feel like your ancestors built the country, which is how most black Americans feel, um, you know, and then my understanding is that there's also a lot of black folks in England who are similar to African-Americans in the sense that they, their families came as slaves as well. So there, but it's kind of like, there's two different, right. You know, and in America, we don't really distinguish if you have black or brown skin and you come to America, you're basically just an African-American. Even if you came last week from Rwanda, like right. you're not an African, you're an African-American cause you look black. Right. So it, there's kind of like an all encompassing yeah, Struggle. and I, and, I, and I also just say that to say that like these guys often have their hands tied because the players, it, yeah, yeah, in a way that like here we don't because if you are from the Congo mm-hmm. and you're playing um, soccer in Italy, mm-hmm. it's like where's your you know yeah you where's your nothing. support where's your stance and so um, yeah it's it, it's definitely like a big problem I would say that it's getting better. It's, it's getting worse. It's going more underground. And it's, I I relate it to the Starbucks situation. Sure. Like, is that Starbucks fault or is is that just, this is where the employee (laughs) called the police on the two black guys who hadn't ordered anything. Yeah. Like I don't really necessarily blame Starbucks for that. I think that was a real life thing that was happening. Sure. And, um, I, I do believe that soccer for a long time turned a blind eye as an industry to some of this stuff. Um, some of it is also just, you know, people being people and it's not necessarily um, specific to soccer. Right. Right. Um, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about this, even though I obviously want to spend the whole time talking about this because it's all I ever want to talk about. But just really quickly, I just want to button this up by just talking about the difference between racism and racialism, just because I brought that up. And I want to make sure that if you don't understand, because I really didn't understand, I did a lot of Googling and messaging Sarah, who was our guest a few weeks ago, who's getting her PhD in this stuff. I was like, Sarah, I don't get it. Help me. And here's what uh, Miriam's Webster says. So racialism is a theory that race determines human traits and capacity. So it's just a theory that race determines what who you are and what you are, whereas racism is a belief that race and the um, is the primary uh, determinant of hu- determinant of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. So basically, the difference is that racialism is just saying you're black, you're different; you're Asian, you're different. Right. Whether or not we agree with that to be true scientifically is a whole different conversation. But that's right. racialism, and then racism is you're black, you're different, and lesser than, lesser yeah. than. And so. My big qualm with the whole thing is just like I felt that Foer was a little cowardly in saying that throwing bananas and calling someone a monkey was racialist when that's clearly racist as fuck. Like yeah. I, I just don't – I don't think that you can justify that and say that it's just, oh, we're different right. and I just happen to know that you throw bananas at black people. Like right. you know. Right. 
you know. And whether or not, you know, it's culturally accepted in the soccer community or not, for me as someone who talks about books, to me, that's a, that's a, not a great look for an author who's a journalist. Like to me, that says that he's working, he's got another agenda. Right. And you know, he does, I think, I think that's pretty clear throughout the book, but I just kind of wanted to tie that little section up. Um, yeah, and that's where actually I'm glad you did that because that's I'm reminded of the point that I was trying to oh. get to. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're black and you're in China, they don't have a history of like big communities of black people there, mm-hmm. and so they're insensitive. They're in they, some if they're insensitive or they do certain things, someone like him would suggest that they're just kind of like. They don't get it. They don't understand. They're not right. necessarily being racist. Right. And I think that his point was um, more that, um, you know, they they don't really know anything about, like, black people and they don't have a reason. Right. Um, but often they do. In Italy, they don't like Somalians because there's Somalian immigrants there. Right. And so a lot of their racism is is um, comes from yeah. their hate for immigrant communities. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's the point that he would try to make and I would push back and say, well, I think you're going to have a hard time convincing me that in England they don't have a relationship with black folks. Like, I just right. think it's hard. Um, you know, but what do I know? Um, really quickly, <laughs> just a quick little break. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So here's the last little bit I want to talk about. I just kind of want to tie this book into the United States, which is how Foer ends the book. He he a little bit talks about um, soccer in America as being more of a rich, white, suburban thing, whereas in other places in the world, it is a more working class of the people sport. And I think that's really interesting um, to think about as maybe a reason why soccer hasn't caught on as much in America. But then I also think about all the people that I know who watch soccer in America and they're all black guys, (laughs) which is super interesting to me. And I think it has to do with um, 
you know, my brother is a huge soccer fan and he traveled to Costa Rica and that's kind of what instigated his interest in soccer. So I wonder if being around people who are passionate about it is more what it is, but I don't know if you've had, talk about your kind of experience with soccer in the States. Yeah. Um, a lot of bougie black folks, Mm -hmm. you know, Brady included. We like, (laughs) we we like soccer. Um, it's a, it's a way of showing, you know, you, you're Mm well-traveled, you're into something different, Mm -hmm. you know, just like you, you know, someone might play some classical music or something. It's a way to show culture and, and bougie white people and bougie, bougie white people, <laughs> bougie yeah. people. Um, but for sure, I mean the the idea that soccer is a middle class white sport in America traditionally is a hundred percent true. Right. Well, that's who plays it. That's who plays it, and that's where the the perspective of what we think of as soccer. And this is one thing that um, we. Um, are really doing with our brand is we're trying to show people how cool soccer is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but here in America, a lot of people, when you see soccer, you think of like, you know, empty soccer fields, you know, orange slices and Capri Suns and, mm-hmm. you know, pizza parties. And, um, you know, actually a lot of black kids play soccer when they're younger, but they, they stop for both economical reasons and because they just don't think it's that cool. Right. And they don't see an end game in it. Sure. They don't see the people that they look up to um, playing it. So um, that's that, that doesn't really isn't reflective of the sport globally. You know, if but that's kind of cool of what's happening in Atlanta because they're getting 70,000 people out to a game. Wow. If you're a young kid and you're growing up in Atlanta and you're turning on the television, and you're seeing 70,000 people at a soccer game, you have a different perspective of it. You sure. and I grew up in Oakland. We never saw more than 10 people at a soccer game. Right. Right. So, um, and then there's also some other stuff that he goes into, which is there was some, you know, kind of Cold War sentiment, anti European. Right. You know, we we have to play football. We have right. to be tough. It's American. It's American. Um, you know, I'm a big Jim Rome fan. And, oh, and he, he always... He talks about him a bunch in the book. Yeah, he always kind of talks bad about soccer. And, um, you know, that we've kind of, like, trained ourselves that um, soccer is, is kind of a sissy sport. Sure. Is that, do people still use that word? I mean, I don't know. You're using it. So, yes. <laughs> so at least one person does. All right. If, if that word... <laughs> Is no longer politically correct at any time in the next year. Sure. I'm out. Okay. We're not trying to be offensive. <laughs> Don't judge this up when Aaron runs for office. Relax. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. Um, one of the things that we do here on the Stacks, I don't know if you know this, but we talk about the title of books. Mm-hmm. And we'll just do this quick. Here, the title of the book is How Soccer Explains the World, An Unlikely Theory of Globalization. And I... I would challenge that perhaps that the title of this book should be something a little bit more closely to like how soccer is a mirror for other things I've seen in the world because I don't really feel like Foer explains the world through soccer. I think more so he takes things that he's seen in the world and says, look, this happens in soccer too. But I think, you know, how soccer explains the world is a much grabbier title. So like, I respect the title cause it's really a good one. I just don't know if it's accurate. It's really long. <laughs> it's also a long title. Well, the <laughs> unlikely theory of globalization is the subtitle. So just, yeah. It's not all in one line. Yeah. Um, it is long. I, I think like overall the book is good. I just I I just wish that it was a little more um analytical and a little I, I wish you pushed back a little bit more. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And you know, I read this book a, a long time ago and, and talking to you about it, um, you know, I think that like what you're identifying is that like he uses soccer as a certain lens to explain, you know, racist things and mm-hmm. um, really kind of like bad things that are happening mm-hmm. in the world. And by doing that, you're kind of like justifying it. Yeah. Almost. He kind of like puts rose colored glasses on some of it. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, that's a very popular thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all love gangster movies, sure. you know, well, um, Scarface. Speak um, for yourself, but yeah, people <laughs> do like those. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> um, you know, the Sopranos, um, you know, so I think that he's doing that to kind of attract people to, right. you know, rooting for. He's trying to sexy it up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. fine. If you want to read a book that I personally think is a really great look at sports in the world and 
maybe a little bit more um, analytical of some of the stuff that goes on, I highly recommend any book by Dave Zirin, but I also particularly love Welcome to the Terror Dome. It's one of my favorite books about sports. I'm just going to throw that out there, people. Okay, I'm going to check it out. I'm um, ready yet. Do you have anything else you want to add about soccer and the world and this book or anything? No, I mean, I think that um, what, like I said, uh, I think in the last episode, what's really interesting about this book and what I would suggest people do if they're not into soccer is um, find ways to find themselves in soccer. Mm. If you're if you're a woman, there's you know the U.S. national women's national team is amazing right. and filled with a lot of black women. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are um, you know of African descent, if you are from Colombia, Mexico, wherever. So I feel like what I love about soccer and what I think that this book you know kind of floats out there is that you can find a lot of yourself, a lot of your history, a lot of mm-hmm. your culture in the sport. Right. And if you connect to it on that, and then you start seeing the way that it plays itself out on the field, um, right. even to the different styles of play and stuff like that. Like one, one thing I love about soccer is I turn on the games in the morning and I'm watching games in Germany, England, Spain, sure. United States, and I'm hearing all these sounds from all these fans. So it's a really... Uh, a cool way to like travel, yeah. Um, you know, in your mind mentally, and I think that's kind of what um, I to the people when I started this, I thought that I was going to be trying to talk more people into the sport. I don't really do that mm-hmm. anymore. But mm-hmm. if you're needing a convincing, you know, as to why soccer is so big, because I think that people in America they're always they we think that we're right, right, to not really like <laughs> soccer, sure. When, when it's wrong. the bigger sport in the world, right. you kind of have to think maybe we're wrong. Right. Well, and that there's an entry point for anyone into soccer, and especially right now, the World Cup is going on when you're listening to this. So if you haven't tuned in yet, like I think Aaron and myself would challenge you, pick a team. Yep. Just start rooting. Like it's group play right now. So you still have time to pick a team. Maybe pick a team that's already qualified for the elimination <laughs> rounds. So you got something to watch for. But, you know, it's – I love the World Cup. I think it's fun to root for people, you know – representing their country just like the olympics how would you feel if russia won the world cup it's in russia so i'd probably think it was like rigged right it would be (laughs) so juicy you know um i'd think that like our president was in on it i think it was a whole thing i'm rooting for Colombia because i was there and i got to watch them play france and win and australia when i was there and they were so into it and i was out in the street so i'm like team Colombia. So hopefully at this point, they're making it to the next round. I don't know. We'll see. Um, But that's it from us today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I will be back next week with my guest, Ross Asdorian. He's an author of a brand new book called Broken Banana. And um, he's hilarious. Oh, banana. It's about when he broke his penis. Okay. Broken Banana. Okay. Aaron, thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you. And we'll see you all in the stacks. All right. That does it for us this week on The Stacks. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Aaron Dolores, for being our guest. Please make sure that wherever you're listening to this show, you are subscribed. And if you have a second, please rate and review the show. We really appreciate it. Our Patreon page is up. It's live. You can contribute to the show. You can help us keep the lights on over here. You also get exclusive awesome perks, so check that out. Special thanks to Sarah Fong. Our graphic designer is Robin McCray. Our theme music comes from Tagirajis. And this show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>